Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. As always, I am your host, Eric Koslick. Now, a recent trend that longtime listeners may have noticed is that here on the podcast, we're trying to get outside of our little bubble here in Washington, D.C., and the East Coast in general, and attempt to get at least a general sense of the cocktail scene elsewhere in the U.S. and, if possible, the world. Recently, we had author Amanda Schuster come on the podcast to talk about New York cocktails. Then, a couple episodes ago, we chatted with Emily Ferris of the Boozy Bungalow about the cocktail scene in Kansas City. This episode, we're continuing to shift our gaze even further west by taking some time to hang out with Shanna Farrell, author of the book Bay Area Cocktails, A History of Culture, Community, and Craft. Before we jump headlong into that interview, though, I did have one West Coast-related update I wanted to share with all you listeners out there. Over the past few months, we've been getting more and more emails from folks asking us to dedicate some time on the podcast for what's going on in their neck of the woods when it comes to cocktails. We like these emails. want to make that clear. We like them. It tells us you're listening and you want to get involved. But... Putting together a podcast and running a brand at the same time is hard work. I need some sleep at some point. So even though we've done a really good job so far repping our local market here in the Mid-Atlantic, there's definitely some room for improvement when it comes to other areas. And for this reason, I'm excited to announce that the Modern Bar Cart Podcast will be doing an exciting West Coast tour sometime in January of 2019, which is surprisingly not all that far away. Although I can't reveal exactly when we'll be on the road for fear of having my apartment thoroughly burglarized by some enterprising individual, I can tell you that the destinations currently include Los Angeles and the Bay Area, San Francisco and Tiburon in particular. So consider this the official call to action if you're listening out there on the West Coast and you want us to come and record with you or with some bartender or distiller or author whom you admire. Personal introductions are always appreciated, right? That's how we get these things scheduled efficiently. And although we can't promise we'll be able to squeeze in every last podcast opportunity on this trip, we're certainly going to do our best to get as many interviews as possible. We've also got some upcoming product releases and lots of in-person events coming up here in the coming weeks as well, but I'm going to save those announcements for another episode so that we can focus on what's important here, right? Giving you the chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Pisco Punch. Now, Shanna and I talk about Pisco later in this episode when we mention some of the historical influence that San Francisco had in terms of the importation of spirits in the 19th century, which is when the cocktail really came of its own. Pisco, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is a Peruvian grape brandy, and it's got a lovely light flavor that lingers somewhere between vodka, cachaça, and some of the lighter agave spirits. Pisco Punch was developed at a bar called the Bank Exchange Saloon in San Francisco in the mid-1800s, and various versions of it were made available by the head bartenders there throughout the ensuing decades. The most renowned version came from the most renowned and last manager, a man named Duncan Nickel, who was unfortunately forced to close the bar in 1919 due to the Volstead Act. I know, I know, that's how we all feel about the Volstead Act. Another unfortunate loss is that Nickel took the actual recipe for Pisco Punch to his grave leaving us to speculate and put things together without a significant trail of breadcrumbs. So, 
Here's what I did. After perusing some of the historical descriptions of the drink and performing a little of my own recipe meta-analysis from about 10 Google results, here's the version that I'm comfortable putting forward for you to try at home. To make a Pisco Punch cocktail, you'll need two ounces of Pisco, three quarters of an ounce of pineapple gome syrup, and three quarters of an ounce of fresh lemon juice. It's actually kind of a simple recipe, although I'm sure Duncan Nickel had his own secret sauce that made it just perfect. A note on pineapple gome syrup. The gome refers to the presence of gum arabic, which is a non-glutinous thickener you can purchase pretty cheaply online, and it simply serves to give a bit more body to a syrup that contains both sugar and pineapple. It's almost like putting cornstarch in your gravy to kind of thicken it up. So, if you're going to make something like this at home, please, please, please check out episode 53 of this podcast, Homemade Syrups, before you get started. There's a lot of great info there that will ensure that your house-made syrup experiments are successful. It's going to save you a lot of time and aggravation if you've never done something like that before. I think I should also point out that this recipe is essentially your standard sour recipe. You've got two ounces of a spirit, three quarters of an ounce of a sweetener, and three quarters of an ounce of fresh citrus juice. And this begs the question, how is this a punch? Where's the spice? Where's the significant influence of water? Well, let's say you do want to make this cocktail in a large format that will serve a number of guests and maybe pack less of a punch of this kind of direct two ounce of a spirit serving size cocktail. Well, if you want to do something like that, here's what I'd recommend. We're going to adjust our classic 4 to 2 to 1 to 1 ratio to a 3 to 2 to 1 to 1 ratio of water to spirit to sugar to sour. And that classic ratio I'm referring to is the classic ratio for a punch. So, making that adjustment, here's what you're going to need. 36 ounces of distilled or spring water one 750 ml bottle of pisco, 12 ounces of pineapple gome syrup, and 12 ounces of lemon juice. Now, if you're following a traditional punch template, you'll need some sort of spice in there. And I personally think this is a really nice place to use either our embitterment lavender bitters, which are amazing in clear spirit cocktails that contain lemon, or our typhoon tiki bitters from the embitterment heritage collection, because this is essentially like a very early tiki cocktail. It's got this exotic spirit in Pisco. It's got pineapple for your fruit, and it's got that racy citrus element and a sweetener. You know, you're, you're kind of moving in the direction of tiki. So uh, the Typhoon Tiki bitters are a really good choice there as well. But keep in mind, adding this sort of thing is just for bonus points. You can still make an amazing Pisco punch without them. If you're following this punch recipe, you're gonna to wanna to combine all those ingredients that I just listed and get them chilled down somehow before service, whether that's in a large pitcher or two in the fridge or in a traditional punch bowl with a block of ice. And remember, a punch, because it's got that larger influence of water, doesn't need to be shaken or stirred to get diluted by the ice. You just need to find a way to chill it down because the significant dilution is already in there. However you look at it, the Pisco Punch is a rockin' cocktail, and I hope that you tag us on Instagram at Modern Bar Cart if you get the chance to try out one of these recipes at home. And now, let's take a journey to the Bay Area and the multitude of cocktail trends and influences it contains. In this conversation with author Shanna Farrell, some of the topics we discuss include the creation of her book, Bay Area Cocktails, and how Shanna used her experience as a professional interviewer to learn from some of the most impressive names in the cocktail world, including Dale DeGroff and David Wondrich. The early history of the cocktail renaissance in the Bay Area, and how a few sparks kindled the movement into a full-blown community. Some thoughts on fern bars. Yeah, that's right. A fern bar is a thing, and we'll tell you exactly what it is in this episode. Notes on some of the most influential figures responsible for the cocktail mecca that San Francisco has become, where to grab a drink with the creator of the hanky-panky, and much, much more. 
You can pick up Shanna's book, Bay Area Cocktails, on Amazon and at independent booksellers in the Bay Area and elsewhere. And you can get in touch with her at Shanna underscore Farrell on Instagram and Twitter and by visiting her website, Shanna-Farrell.com. That said, let's jump right in and enjoy this fascinating interview. Shanna, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So could you please introduce yourself for our listeners and just give them a bit of general background so they know who you are and what you're all about? Sure. So I'm an interviewer at UC Berkeley in the Oral History Center. So basically, I work full time as an oral historian. And I also am a writer and I do audio production. So I, I freelance for different podcasts, including Gravy, which is a podcast from the Southern Foodways Alliance. And a lot of my work kind of on my own that I do is focused on contemporary cocktail culture and the intersection, how that's the intersection of a lot of different things, including big topics like labor, gender, race, uh, legality of things, history, and also the environment. That's a, a thing that I'm kind of working on right now is the intersection between cocktail culture and the environment. Really, really interesting. It must be pretty unique to be someone who deals more with oral history because I, I feel like by its very nature, these are some of the things that actually get lost. And so you're, you're really kind of reaching into the void and, and preserving things that might not otherwise get published or saved, right? Yeah, that was my motivation for starting my work as an oral historian. Um, I, I did get a, a master's in it, so I spent a year being really indulgent and learning all about it. And that's one of the things that they drove home is that a lot of times the people who are creating history, it's it's voice they call it voices from above. So it's the elite history, and oral history is this kind of turn to make sure that other voices are included in the record and kind of fill in the gaps where things are. Um, and I really like it because the things that I'm interested in, it's hard to find, like like bar culture, it's really hard to find historic books that are comprehensive. Most of them are recipe-based, but I, I'm into the cultural side of things, um, and so you don't get a lot of that through what's in the archives now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this kind of brings us to what we're here to discuss today, which is the book that you wrote about Bay Area cocktails. So could you talk a little bit about what it was like to write that book, um, including, you know, kind of how you came up with the idea and what the process was like? Sure. So I started, it, it dovetails with my work at UC Berkeley. So I started there in 2013. Yeah, 2013. And I, want, I had always wanted to do this project about an oral history project around the bars in the East Village in New York City, because I'm, I'm from New York. And I was there when the cocktail revival was really digging in. And so I saw all these bars pop up. And I was like, this would be super interesting to talk to people about what it was like to build this little cocktail oasis in the middle of New York City that became so important. But I ended up getting the job at UC Berkeley and I moved out there and I want I, I ended up pitching this project about West Coast cocktail culture. And so because I was a New Yorker, I wasn't super familiar with all the history on the West Coast. And I assembled an advisory team and that included uh, Talia Bayoki from Punch as well as Leslie Pariso, who used to be with Punch. Um, Dale DeGroff, Dave Wondrich. And so I kind of talked with them about what were some of the important things, some of the people I should be focusing on. And at my office, we're a nonprofit, so I had to do some fundraising. And I ended up doing a, uh, it was an Indiegogo to raise money to do the interviews that I was, I was thinking of. And there were five people that I was starting with, including Julio Bermejo, who owns Tommy's Mexican restaurant in the Richmond district in San Francisco. And he's the reason why we drink 100% blue agave tequila in the United States and globally at this point. Um, Paul Harrington, who came up in the 1980s and late 1980s, 19, early 1990s in the Bay Area. Uh, Marco Dionysus, who set up the bar program at Absinthe in 1998. Thad Vogler, who ran the program at the Slanted Door, in, which has been in various locations, but which is now on the Embarcadero in San Francisco. 
and there were five, I'm forgetting one person. No, that was, oh, and, and, um, yeah, I think that was it. And then there were also, um, three distillers who were really important in the Bay area. The first craft distillery to open since prohibition opened in 1982 in Alameda and the founder York Rupf was somebody who I interviewed. Um, so I wanted to, to kind of start with them. And so I, I raised some money and what I ended up doing was pitching an article to punch because I'm a big whiskey drinker. So the article was about what it means to drink whiskey as a woman and sort of some of the things you, some of the reactions you get from male bartenders when you open, when you order a whiskey at a bar and the article did really well. And so that led me to writing other articles. And really the whole idea at that point was just to keep promoting the project that I was working on and try to raise money. But I really fell in love with writing and I'd always been a big reader and a big writer. Um, but just, yeah, I, I started to take it more seriously and to pitch things. And I was approached by a book publisher. Well, she was an acquisitions editor for a publisher and had said, Hey, I really like your writing. Do you want to write a book? It wasn't something I had really been thinking about at that point, but I, um, she kind of, I had a lot of freedom and what I would be able to do with this publisher so I ended up putting together a book proposal and because I had all these oral history interviews, I thought that this would be a good starting place. So that's all why I decided on the topic of Bay Area cocktails. And I also learned just how significant the history of cocktails are in the Bay Area during the revival. And as a New Yorker, that wasn't something that I was completely familiar with. So it was a really awesome opportunity to really dig into what had happened locally and how important it was and how sort of underappreciated it is in the larger cocktail landscape. That's really, really interesting. I, there's a, a couple of things um, that, that you just said that, that really interest me. Uh, one, it's I think it's great that you are a New Yorker who is kind of going to the West Coast. And so you have both perspectives. Uh, we recently did an interview with Amanda Schuster, who's the author of New York Cocktails. And oh, yeah. so this this interview, I'm hoping, can be kind of like a, a really nice counterpoint or a companion episode to that one. Uh, and it's great that, that you have uh, both perspectives to draw from. And also, just you kind of casually threw out some names of these people who are on your advisory board, uh, you know, Dale DeGroff, David <laughs> Wondrich. And it's like, my question is, how did you manage to assemble those superheroes to be kind of like your, um, I don't know, the, the, the voices in the clouds as, as you approach this project? Um, it was it was super random. I, I am part of what I do is just sort of reach out to people cold. And I'm like, hey, I'm doing this thing it'd be cool if you help me or like, you know, I just, I'm not afraid to reach out to people. Um, and so I ended up just reaching out to them blindly and was like, Hey, I, I get gotten their contact information through the grapevine, told them what I was up to, told them what I was doing. And they were, I mean, sometimes when you reach out to people, they're a little skeptical. They're like, well, what do you really want from me? And I was like, I just want your knowledge. I want your opinion. And they liked what I was doing and the fact that it was, going to end up in an archive. I know a lot of what Dave has been doing for the past number of years has been a response to the lack of history. And he actually used the archives at the library that I work at to write imbibe. Um, so, you know, there was some sort of camaraderie there already. And yeah, so I, they were, they were into it and I spent some time on the phone with them and I've, I've since um, met them in person and, and Dave more than Dale, but, um, yeah, it was really nice to have their their input, especially because they're they're East Coast guys, but they both lived in L.A., so they both have um, similar East Coast West Coast perspectives. Got it, got it. So you you have a you have a great team. You put together this book. What was the kind of like publication process like? And I guess like take us from right when the book was ready to be published up until now. Yeah. So it's actually perfect timing to have this conversation because the book came out just like just about a year ago. So I've had enough time to kind of reflect on it. Mm. Um, writing the book was really fun. I got to do, I ended up doing over 30 interviews for the book. So 
it was a really great group of people who are interviewing. I was interviewing and I learned so much. There's never enough time. So there are definitely people that I wish that I could have interviewed that I didn't have a chance to. Um, and, and there are definitely some glaring holes in what I've done. Um, but time is a, was a factor. And, uh, if I had five more years, it would have looked very different. Um, but yeah, I did the interviews. I used auto transcription software to transcribe them. So I was really just pulling out different stories and different themes and looking at things, things chronologically and how they kind of moved. Um, I started to piece together sort of what came when, so who was around. One of the, the interviews that I did, actually it was remotely, was with Paul Harrington, who set up the townhouse. Well, he didn't set it up, but he was a bartender at the townhouse in Emeryville. And he really starts to get interested in classic cocktails. And I attribute a lot of the revival to him. He ended up setting up a bar in San Francisco called Enrico's. And that became the hub of mojito culture. And I think, and he also ended up writing a book that came out in 1998. That was one of the first ones in the cocktail revival. That was really awesome. I learned a lot from him. There were a lot of little things that I didn't really know that he provided the information to fill in the gaps for that. And then, yeah, I just sat down for like, I want to say it was about six months to actually write the manuscript. During that period of time, my acquisitions editor left. So the editing process ended up being pretty problematic. And I do feel like the book at this point, I would have done a lot of things differently and it would have been nice to have a little bit more editorial help. Um, so when I was launching it, it was a little bit, I did have some feelings around it, but, um, I can always do like second editions and things like that. So that's kind of in the pipeline now, but yeah, I mean, it was just, it was six months of me listening to audio, writing, sitting at my desk. Um, I wasn't really, I had to kind of take a step back from a lot of other freelance writing that I was doing and really just focus on this. And then we, I worked with two local photographers to put together the book, including John Santer, who was on the opening crew of Bourbon and Branch and now is a co-owner of Prizefighter, also in Emeryville. And he did the portraits for the book, and that was really awesome. And then another photographer who'd been a long friend, longtime friend of mine, uh, Nando Alvarez Perez, who did a lot of the, the cocktail shots. And a friend of mine, Vaughn Glidden, who, who was a prop stylist for that. So I think that the photos in the book are pretty stunning. I'm really proud of those. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of quick overview, I guess. <laughs> Really, really interesting. I, I like that you had sort of like the the specialists on the photograph front because you know it really does. You know when you're when you're talking about um, recipes, just having that accompanying photo and and implanting that into people's mind is uh, really enhances the experience of you know taking that book out, bringing it over to the bar, reading the recipe, and having that beside you as you craft the cocktail, especially if it's a recipe that you're not necessarily super familiar with, right? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it just, it makes a connection. It builds that bridge between the reader and, and somebody who the, the visual and the words come together that way. Right, right. Okay. So, uh, we've kind of got a sense about how this book came to be. Um, sounds like it was, you know, truly a patchwork of these transcribed interviews and some of the other research that you did. Um, but I'd like to jump into what Bay Area cocktails are or what the San Francisco cocktail scene really is. And usually what I do in these situations is I try to go back, you know, to, to the origins of the cocktail and, and your book is, is definitely more on the contemporary side, kind of taking readers through the cocktail revolution and how that revival took place and really, uh, kind of swelled to where it is today in San Francisco. Um, so I do just want to quickly mention that we have a podcast episode called Frontier Cocktails. And this was kind of a celebration of one of our products, um, our Frontier Sarsaparilla bitters that we uh, launched back in January of this year. So if anybody is interested in doing kind of a deep dive on 
cocktails on the American frontier and in the American West in general, kind of at the very earliest stages of the cocktail when you had all these proto cocktails kind of converging and transitioning into what we understand today to be a cocktail, then definitely head over to modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Check out that episode, Frontier Cocktails. But what we're going to do, if that's okay, is kind of skip ahead a little bit and um, maybe can you just talk about how the cocktail renaissance first kind of slowly got rolling in the Bay Area? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest differences, well, this may be debatable now, but and this may be a little controversial, but one of the biggest differences in the cocktail revival between the East and the West Coast is community. So I was a bartender in New York during the cocktail renaissance and I didn't feel as much community as I did when I moved to the West coast. And I really, I really got a sense for how deeply connected the community is here. They're just so welcoming and so open and sort of like, you think this is cool. You do this too. Come hang out with us and be a part of this thing that we're doing. So I think that's a big part of the reason why the cocktail renaissance happened on the West coast. The other part is there is this history there's a really great book called Drinking the Devil's Acre by Doug and McDonald, and that kind of takes you through the early part of the the cocktail thing and the the during the gold rush era and, and the, the decades that follow. And it's kind of takes you through the history of San Francisco through a number of drinks. Um, and so there is a there is this long history of that here. Uh, fern bars were a thing here in the 1970s. That's where they kind of became popular. Um, Tiki has always been a thing here. So there's been these little pockets of cocktail culture that have been around for a really long for since since the dawn of the cocktail. Um, but then in I want to say it was around the it was like late 80s, early 90s, where there were a few people who started getting really curious. They were bartending. There were no cocktail menus at that point. Uh, Paul Harrington is one of those people who he was bartending. He actually ended up working on Fisherman's Wharf, which is a really touristy part of San Francisco in a restaurant that was a lot like TGI or TGI Fridays, which actually was a friend bar at one point. Um, but um, he he was bartending there and started to learn about precision and about why precision helps make a good, consistent cocktail. And ended up getting Campari had always been around. So we started looking at Negroni recipes on the back of that um, and would frequent flea markets. Flea markets are a really big thing on the West coast and they happen year round because the weather is nice. So you're not limited by seasons. And he started finding these vintage cocktail books. And when he would bartend on his shifts, he would start making the recipes and people would get really excited about it. So it started to plant these seeds around town Marco Dionysus is also somebody who was really just curious about different recipes. He's a really smart guy. He reads a lot. He was living in Portland near Powell's books and these cocktail books were like 50 cents, a dollar, $3. So he would just leave with armfuls full of, of cocktail books and start working on recipes. And so there are these couple different places that open that are, are doing cocktails and people really catch on to them for whatever reason. I mean, I, 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 it's hard for me to know why people got super into them. Um, on the consumer side, I think it was this sort of mix from the people that I've talked to. It was this mix of feeling like they were part of a community at this bar where they were trying this cool thing that the bartender was really excited about, would talk to them about. So there was this camaraderie and there was this connection and it tasted really good. Um, and then it became, I mean, people just it kind of snowballed from there. Um, and then in 1998, Marco Dionysus sets up the bar at Absinthe and thinking that it was going to be beer, wine, cocktails were going to be part of it, but maybe not the center of the show. And he has a memory of one day they were open late. So they'd get a lot of industry people in for late night food. And he says that he remembers looking down the bar one night and every single person was drinking a cocktail. And this was in 1998. I mean, this was angel share had just opened in New York milk and honey had not opened. So this was happening 
for years, kind of before it really did in New York. Um, and then I will also say the other thing that happened was the internet. Uh, since Silicon Valley is kind of the hub of tech in America at this point and was then too, uh, there were a lot of blogs that were happening. And so people were finding each other over blogs and Paul Harrington actually wrote for Hotwired, which was the blog, the online version of Wired at the time, writing a cocktail column called The Alchemist. And so people were doing research about historic cocktails and he was kind of, um, shepherding those stories. So I, I think that that's a big, that's kind of the roots of that. Wow. It's, it's really interesting to think of Silicon Valley as a force for cocktails rather than a force for, I don't know, like spam email or pixel <laughs> tracking or something like that. Yeah. So that part's really interesting too. And it's, I think some of the, the, so there, there's a few reasons for that. I mean, they make a lot of money, so they have expendable income. And so cocktails are expensive. There is a whole class barrier to cocktails. Um, so it's a lot of people who have money to spend and, you know, they've steamed to blow off. So uh, even during the, the people talk about how it did affect rest, the, the 90s dot com bubble burst did affect things and, and income and that kind of thing. Um, but when times were good, restaurants and bars were really, were hopping. So I think that there is that sort of natural connection there. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's a good thing too, that the cocktail movement had enough momentum to get past some of those, you know, bubbles bursting and recessions that took place between when, uh, if they first started to get big and, and the current day, because, uh, you know, you could very easily imagine a world in which, you know, people just kind of lost interest in the wake of those financial realities. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, the other thing, the other component of that too, um, I did do an oral history interview with David Wondrich. And he said that a lot of the, the reason that he was able to write and buy was because Google books happened because they were scanning all these old books. So they were accessible online. So it was just this wealth of information that was at your, literally at your fingertips. Mm, yeah. And he is, you know, a uh, historian's historian. That's, that's his background. So, you know, you can really appreciate his kind of uh, disciplined approach to assembling some of the, the topics that he writes about. Yeah, absolutely. So before we move on, I just, I had a quick question because you mentioned something called a fern bar and I, I think it's a bit self-evident based on the name, but I've never heard of a bar referred to as a fern bar. So can you explain what that is? I can do my best. Um, there's Martin Kate who owns Smuggler's Cove is kind of a fern bar expert. <laughs> so I feel like he could do a much better job. But the, from what I understand as the caveat there is that they kind of started in the Victorian era um, where it was, it was a little hub for, for gay culture. So there would be these massive ferns that would actually cover the window so you couldn't see what was going on. Um, and then for whatever reason, it sort of got morphed and mutated and ended up at a place called Henry's Africa in San Francisco. And they had these massive ferns, but it was more of a like a heterosexual thing at that point, um, where they would, would men would, they would run really great happy hours where basically women would drink for free, but they also marketed these like crazy sweet drinks to women because they thought that that's what they would like, like pink martini. Well, not pink, a uh, pink martini, but like, um, lemon drops. And there's a few other ones I can't remember, but like sweet and colorful. Um, and, and so men would go in there to meet women. So it was kind of this, this funny little cult like thing that happened. Interesting. And so it kind of, it, it started back in the 1800s and kind of morphed, um, as, as you got into the 20th century, do, do we have any of these things like kind of still around in the present day, or is it uh, something that kind of has chilled out a little bit? I think it's chilled out a little bit. I could definitely be wrong about that, but I, um, from what I understand, it was popular in the Victorian era, and then it kind of was a little bit underground, and then it was more mainstream in the 70s, and then it kind of fell off. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, all right. I'm glad, I'm glad I know about that, because that would have been bothering me all interview. <laughs> what is a fern bar? Okay. Um, so, we've got these folks who, whether they were buying all these really cheap old cocktail books and then bring home and... and 
reading through them or, you know, kind of casually and gradually dipping their toes into the world of cocktails for patrons at a bar and kind of practicing their skills for an interesting crowd. Uh, that's how the movement started. Now, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how... Bay Area cocktail culture evolved from there. You know, let's let's take as a premise like, okay, now people are aware, people are interested. What happens next? Yeah, so this is where Bay Area culinary culture really becomes important because restaurants and bars are one and the same. So a bar didn't really exist a cocktail bar didn't really exist without a restaurant or sort of the cocktail bars that we think of them now. So dive bars excluded. Um, this is, this history is sort of more middle upper class, uh, because of, of the restaurant thing and not everybody can afford to go to a restaurant kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so people started to realize that bars were the profit center of restaurants and in a restaurant, the profit margin is really, really, really thin. So if there's a way that you can make money, it's great to focus on that. So this is also a time when celebrity chefs were becoming a big thing. And so a lot of the, the kind of higher end restaurants started to invest more into their bars. So people started to, there just was more opportunity. People were more interested it was a way to make a great income. Um, so that started happening. And then I think, I mean, honestly, I just think it was sort of a snowball from there. Um, because there was this connection between restaurants and bars, the standalone cocktail bar was a gamble when it started to become a thing. So one of the first places that was a standalone cocktail bar that did not have food was bourbon and branch. And that opened in 2006 as sort of the speakeasy style place that required reservations and a password and the whole thing. Um, and they, the opening team of that place were like, you know, we're just going to have, we're going to create a bar that is a civilized experience and it's going to be good wine, good beer, good cocktails. And then when they opened, they realized that all anybody wanted was cocktails. So it was kind of this moment where, wow, cocktails are here. They're not going anywhere. We can also run an establishment that doesn't require food. It's a standalone thing now. And that, I mean, that basically took to 2006. So if you kind of think about the, the eight years between Absinthe opening in 1998 and then Bourbon and Branch opening in 2006, that's really fast when you think about it, it's eight years where people are, or they're like, we don't know if cocktails are going to be a thing. And then it catching on. So those early years were kind of important. And then, um, that also is around the time during those, that those eight years, what else happens is the USBG in San Francisco takes off. That really is an effort to, I guess, formalize the community that's here and get people together to talk about things and to bring in different producers to talk about their spirits. And it's this real push for education. And it ends up leading to one of the strongest communities, I think, in the country. Um, and it also uh, cocktail competitions were happening then. So it was this way of like professionalizing things and making it more accessible, but a way of sort of celebrating what's happening pushing bartenders into the spotlight a little bit more. And then from 2006, everything just really takes off. And now it's like in San Francisco, there's a cocktail bar opening. It seems like every week at this point. Mm, right, right. And just for listeners, the USBG is the U.S. Bartenders Guild. Yes. Correct? Yes. Uh, they, have I, I a think... national, uh, they have a national guild and then they have different chapters in different cities. So this was the uh, United States Bartenders Guild San Francisco chapter. Mm, right, right. So I think a lot of people, when they think of a bartender, they think of them just sort of being there when they show up at the bar and then they leave. It's like uh, they, they don't really understand, in many cases, the professionalization, the training, and the uh, just practice involved in, in learning a craft like that. And, and certainly the USBG and other organizations like that have done a ton uh, to, to really, like you said, build community, which is, I, you know, it might be an invisible force 
for the most part in the the cocktail revival, but it's it's certainly an important one. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's kind of the glue that keeps everything together. So you mentioned producers just then. Can you just give us a brief overview about producers on the West Coast? I mean, one noteworthy one is obviously St. George's Spirit. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if there's any difference that you've noticed between producers on the West Coast, um, whether that's the type of products they tend to put out, the ethos that they bring along with it, or the way that they, I guess, interact with the bar community. You know, that's interesting. And I uh, haven't really thought about it in the differences because there are a lot. I think there's more similarities and differences. I will say that St. George opened in 1982 and the way that they were doing things is they were. Uh, so Jörg Rupp, their founder, is from Germany and he grew up in a, a culture where basically everybody either had a brewery or everybody was making eau de vie. So it's a fruit based brandy, um, which people at the time knew as schnapps, but it was, it was like people didn't do it commercially. They just did it kind of as seasonal preservation and a thing for their family. And it was just, it was a part of things. So he took an approach where he really wanted to get the essence of the fruit and wanted when he was distilling things, you had to know what you were drinking, where it came from. And that's really the ethos I think that is emblematic of West Coast and in particular the Bay Area with places like Chez Panisse and that kind of thing. Um, Jorg ends up helping. So two other producers set up their companies in 1983, including uh, Germain Robin and Charbet. And from what I understand, there I think there may have been some conversation between Jorg and helping them set up. But I do know that Jorg in the years that followed helped many people across the country set up their distillery. So York also had a background in law. He was the youngest federal judge in Germany and came over to the United States to do a postdoc at Berkeley in kind of the intersection between arts, culture, and law. So he was able to read these laws and help people set their distilleries up. And then he also was able to help them with their process of distilling. So you get a lot of his ripples throughout the country. And I think now people are really taking this approach where they think of, I mean, I'm a big proponent of thinking of spirits as agricultural products because they did come from a crop and people are, are making a lot of the small distillers that are, well, small and craft and artisanal are such loaded words at this point, but people who are taking an agricultural approach are really thinking about how do we capture the essence of this crop in our bottle. And that I think is pretty much everywhere. It may have started here simply because it was York and simply because it was the first craft distillery since prohibition. Um, but the other thing is when Lance Winters, who is now one of the co-owners of St. George, and responsible for their their whiskey and a lot of their other products that launched during this revival period, he really made an effort to interact with the bar community, and I think that that also set the stage for a lot of other people. Include somebody, um, uh, Marco from Charbet, also did a really excellent job in interacting with the local community here, and now I think you see distillers from all over really understand the importance of connecting with with bartenders in the community and, and getting bartenders behind their product so they can help sell it and turn people onto what they're doing. Right. Not just sticking a couple pallets of your product on a truck and crossing your fingers. Right. And it's more than just offering somebody a discount to carry their spirits in their, in your bar. You have to like, at this point, things have proliferated so much. I mean, it's hard to keep up with what's happening now. Um, and there are these different trends like gin is really popular now. It seems like everybody has a gin while they're waiting to get their whiskey ready. I've been hearing that rum is making a comeback for a really long time. I don't really think it went anywhere, but <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to see those trends. So what you were just saying, uh, especially about Jorg and St. George, it, it reminds me of two things. One, it reminds me of the role that kind of individual genius played in the beginning of the cocktail revival and to the whole 
grain to glass movement or I guess spirits as agricultural products, as you were saying, these two concepts brought to mind one person uh, from the Bay Area because I just recently read his book and it, he seems it seems like he was one of the key people in your interviews as well. So can you talk a little bit about Thad Vogler? Oh, yes, I would love to. Um, so Thad is incredibly smart and we share the idea that spirits are agricultural products. So he's actually somebody who I, I view as an ally in trying to get people to think about how, you know, bottles of whiskey shouldn't always taste the same. They come from different crops and different years and different conditions. And we should celebrate that instead of turning away from that. Um, so yeah, he's, um, Let's see. Um, he is a Bay Area native. He kind of split his youth between um, Santa Cruz and the Pacific Northwest. Um, he ended up going to Yale on a basketball scholarship and got his first bartending job at the Yale Repertory Theater. Um, he wanted to be a writer for a really long time, so he was kind of bartending while he was writing. He was traveling a lot, which has really influenced the way that he's thought about cocktails he worked at a few places that were um, holdovers from, I guess, not prohibition days, but they were they were doing a lot of classic cocktails. Um, actually, one of the bartenders that he learned from is friends with Dale DeGroff, so they were kind of part of that whole school together. Um, and Thad ends up taking over, or like starting the bar program at the slanted door when it was in its second location and they had gotten a liquor license and Charles fan, who is the chef owner of the slanted door gave Thad a lot of he just gave him a lot of freedom to be able to set up the bar. Like he, he wanted to. And that meant that Thad was not interested. So Thad will like strip things down and look at spirits as archetypes and look at the ingredients and if it has artificial stuff, he'll throw it out. So there's a lot of stories that I've heard from that and from people who worked with him about how like a, somebody from Coca-Cola would show up and he would call, Thad would call them to remove the guns, like the, the soda guns. And the Coca-Cola rep would be like, well, there's nothing wrong with this. Why do you want it removed? Like he just couldn't understand, couldn't wrap his head around the fact that somebody wanted to remove a gun. Um, and that'd be like, no, rip it out, just take it out. Um, so that was kind of radical and they were only using products. It was a pretty stripped down bar. They were only using products that didn't have artificial ingredients were operating in a transparent way. And that was a real, it took a lot of work and it took a lot of patience to be able to describe to customers like why they didn't have this. And so Eric Adkins is actually a really big part of that whole thing. He worked with Thad for a long time and was kind of the the one who was like, you know, we have to be able to describe to people. We can't just keep saying no all the time. We have to say, well, we, we may not have this, but I think you'd really like this. So it would be an opportunity. For, he would create an opportunity for people to try things using language and sort of, hey, you're in on this cool thing. Let's try something new instead of falling back on, back on like comfort things. Um so, yeah, I mean, Thad really takes this like dogmatic approach to not having these things and then working with the staff on how to create an environment where it seems welcoming and not off-putting. And I think he's done a really great job. He now owns Bar Agricole and True Normand. And I think that those are some of the best cocktails in the city still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just saw something on Instagram from him the other day. It looks like they may be nearing uh, completion on Obispo, which is, I believe, a Cuban-themed rum bar that they, they're planning on opening. That's that's what I've heard as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to be able to examine some of these really – I guess forceful is the wrong word, but, and so is intense, but, um, I guess people who really put a lot of energy and direction in, into creating the cocktail movement that we, that we now know. And so for anybody who's interested in getting that inside look from somebody who's 
a really a driving force in the industry. Uh, definitely check out Thad's book, By the Smoke and the Smell. Uh, and if you want a little sneak preview, we actually have a book review. Uh, it's uh, maybe about five, five or seven episodes ago here on the Modern Bar Cart podcast. So again, you can head over to modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Check out that book review. Um, I, I To me, I, I really enjoyed the way he wrote not only about the uh, spirits themselves, but also the people uh, it was very, very much was a sociological trip as well as a, a gastronomical trip. Yeah, you can definitely tell in his book that he does have a writing background and he's a great writer. And we were actually writing our books at the same time. Um, so it was we had this we would like run into each other at coffee shops and be like, how's it going for you today? Terrible. How's it going for you today? So it's really <laughs> nice to see his book. And it's it's um, I think it's a really fantastic read. Mm hmm. So. Before we jump into some lightning round questions here, can we talk about some of the more important cocktails on the West Coast? I mean, you have on the East Coast, you've got like these, you know, the black Manhattan, anything with the word Manhattan in it. You have these boozy stirred drinks. And I'm wondering if, if the cocktails themselves in the Bay Area or on the West Coast tend to look at any different or if there's just cocktails that are fairly important on the West coast. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of those things that the East coast is known for their, their stirred spiritus drinks, but the West coast has a long history of that as well, especially because it is, it does get cold in San Francisco. So people do drink a lot of the spiritus cocktails and actually I still bartend a couple nights a week and people are really interested in stirred cocktails. So there is, this, there's a little bit of mythology around that. That's actually in my book. I do address that because there was an article that came out that kind of sets up that divide a little bit. Um, but so that's an aside, but, um, the, yeah, there are definitely a lot of cocktails that I think are really important here. Uh, the Martinez, that's historic. Uh, the Pisco Punch, historically as well. Um, uh, let's see. The Chartreuse Swizzle that Marco Dionysus came up with, that's really important. Um, that's kind of a, a tiki interpretation. Uh, the Mai Tai is important on the note of tiki. Um, and, yeah, those are some some really big ones. Uh, the Daiquiri is really big here. Um, I, I, that, that's more of a sort of a bar culture type thing. So a lot of time you get a lot of people ordering daiquiris, which I think are delicious. And it's one of those sort of like bartending litmus tests. Uh, a lot of people drink Negronis and there's a lot of variations to those that you can do with local spirits. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah. Okay. Really interesting. Point, there's like, you, because the internet you can, and, and travel as people travel a lot. So there's, there's maybe not one defining characteristic of West Coast cocktails anymore. Um, it's kind of just national trends at this point. Right, right. Well, one of the things that I think about when I, I think about New York cocktails is that New York was definitely the central port for both imports on the East Coast and imports of people, right, immigrants. And for the West Coast, the Bay Area and San Francisco really does kind of serve that same purpose. And it's just fascinating to me that, like, you know, think of a spirit like Pisco, which was in San Francisco, this was something that they had access to back in, like, the 1850s, 1860s. Yeah. Sheerly by the fact that if you wanted to get Pisco on the East Coast, you would have had to send it all the way around South America. Whereas on the West Coast, all you had to do was, you know, uh, drive up the coast, uh, you know, uh, a few hundred miles and you were able to drop it right off at the port. So it's fascinating how, you know, that access um, and that port aspect of San Francisco also plays into it. Yeah. I mean, San Francisco historically is a port city. It was an, I mean, you kind of from SFO, if you're driving North into the city, there's a sign that says industry city. Um, it, it, there was the historically San Francisco is definitely more of an industrial city. Um, and that does include the port as well. Um, and so rum and Pisco were coming in. So I think that's also why there was a lot of rum on the West coast as well. So a lot of times when I think about historic cocktails, I think of Pisco and rum. Yeah. Mm, okay. Very cool. All right. Well, do you have time for a couple of lightning round questions before sure. we sign off here? Yeah. All right. So what is your favorite cocktail? And if you can't name a favorite of all time, uh, what's something you may have more recently fallen in love with? 
I am an old fashioned drinker through and through. So, um, rye old fashions, but also I love Oaxacan old fashions as well. Mm, and that's with mezcal. Um, uh, yeah, it's kind of a, a split between mezcal and tequila. Mm, okay. Okay. Uh, I, I should also say that I like mine with, um, the, the mole bitters as well. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. So if you had to make an old fashioned right now, uh, what bourbon? Or sorry, uh, what what rye? You just said rye. What rye? Yeah, I'm I am a big fan of Highwire Spirits, based out of Charleston, South Carolina. Their rye, so I would do it with that. Um, a, I think just like a bar spoon. Actually, no, I would use. Let me start over. So I would I would use Highwire Spirits rye. They're based in Charleston, South Carolina. I would, instead of simple syrup, I would use the Leopold Brother Maraschino liqueur, a bar spoonful of that, um, and bitters. Mm-hmm. Stir it in a glass on a big cube and then ready to go. Yeah, that, that Leopold Maraschino is definitely drier than the Luxardo stuff. Yes, absolutely. Mm, very. That, sound, that sounds like a great old-fashioned. So next question would be, if you were a cocktail tool or ingredient, what would you be and why? I think that I would be a glass-blown mixing pitcher. I know that's super random, but I love the aesthetic of glass loan mixing pitchers. I drink spirit forward cocktails. So the stirring part is great. Um, and then I also really like the idea of like, you're, you're putting something in a vessel and it can be different every time and you're filling something up and all those metaphors. <laughs> mm, yeah. And is a, a stirring pitcher, this, this might sound picky and it, it there, you might not actually have an answer to it, but is a pitcher by its nature larger than um, like the regular single serve stirring. Oh glasses. no, it's just a, a mixing glass. I just called it a pitch. Yeah. Same, same thing. Okay. Cause I've definitely seen, you know, like the footed ones where you can put like, you know, three or four cocktails worth of a stirred cocktail in there. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Mm. I, yeah, that's true. I feel like I would be way too drunk if I did that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you could have, and, and, you know, you've, you've interviewed some really impressive people. So if you could have a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would that be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint a picture for us. So I have kind of a bar related answer and because I'm a writer, a literary answer, um, my real quick, my literary answer, um, I'm a huge fan of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and Eula Bliss, two different writers. So they would be my like, real, um, answers, but bar related, I would love to have a drink with Ada Coleman. Um, she was born in 1875 and is credited with the hanky panky. So it would be really great to drink a hanky panky with her. Um, and probably in New York. And, uh, I would love to kind of, even though she's, she's long been dead, it would be great to have a drink with her in, maybe like Amoria Margot. That's one of my favorite New York bars and kind of talk to her a little bit about, you know, if she ever thought this was possible and what the differences were like when she was bartending then and now and what it was like being a woman, a female bartender. And, you know, did she ever think that her name would be in history books and that kind of thing? Mm, I love a good hanky panky. Can you just <laughs> uh, briefly explain what that is for our listeners? Um, yeah. So that is, a gin cocktail with a little bit of, I believe it's Fernet. Am I getting this wrong? Um, I've seen, I've seen a number of different Amari used. Uh, Fernet might be the original. Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's Fernet. Uh, I remember. Yeah. Um, yeah. So gin and, and Fernet, I think. And, oh, gin, vermouth and Fernet. That's what it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's kind of, it's almost like a um it's almost like a, a Martinez with a little bit of uh of a little bit of bitterness to it. Yeah, it's like I think it's they use just a bar spoon of Fernet. And actually when I was bartending in New York, I put that on one of my specials menu and people wouldn't order it because of the name and I ended up shortening shortening it to the HP and people ordered it all the time. Really? People so, were see I feel like it would have the opposite effect because it's like a little bit naughty. I know. I, I I yeah, maybe I was bartending in Brooklyn Heights, so maybe it had something to do with that. But um mm. yeah, people were put off by the name when I changed it. It was better. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. 
So you yourself are a cocktail book author, and we've been talking about other authors here. Uh, so aside from anything that we've mentioned so far, are there any books about cocktails or cocktail history that have been particularly influential or enjoyable for you? Yes. Um, first and foremost, I would actually say Colin Spolman's The King, um, King's County Guide to Moonshining. There's so much history in that, and I think it takes a different perspective than you've seen in, or I've seen in a lot of cocktail books. Um, it is more, it's less about distilling and more about history. And I've kind of come up with a lot of theories based out of that book. And he's also just a delightful human as well. So um, that one's been particularly influential. Uh, the, I mean, I, there's some really fantastic writers out there. I love Martin Kate's book, um, his Smuggler's Cove, like Tome. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of other writers that I really enjoy. I think I credit a lot to David Wondrich and to Dale DeGroff and to Paul Harrington for having a lot of books out there or for, for publishing some of the first books, but I'm also a big fan of Maggie Hoffman, Lou Bustamante. They're doing great work. Um, yeah, the, the folks at punch have a lot of great stuff. There's, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly drawing inspiration from a lot of stuff. So Emma Jansen's book. Got it. Got it. Yeah. It seems like in order to be a cocktail writer, you first and foremost have to be a cocktail reader. I think so. Yeah. All right. So if you could give any piece of advice to somebody who's just starting to learn about or experiment with cocktails or home bartending, uh, based on your experience, based on what you've known and read and learned over the years, what would you advise them to do? So I would actually advise them to get out of their comfort zone a little bit. So there was one year where I hadn't been the biggest gin drinker and I felt like I was missing out on a ton of drinks. And so I decided my new year's resolution was to drink more gin and it opened up a whole world to me. And now I, I love gin. I drink it all the time. Um, and I just, I think it's a fantastic base for a cocktail. So, I mean, even doing something like that where it's like, okay, I'm familiar with this one thing, but I want to push it a little bit. So I'm going to go to a bar and I'm going to order this and then I'm going to learn more about it and maybe buy a bottle of it at home and start experimenting with things so I can understand what I like. And yeah, so just kind of pushing it a little bit further, but also uh, the bar book by Jeffrey Morgenthaler is great as far as kind of a, a technique thing for home bartenders. And then, um, there are some, I think the death and co book has really great recipes in it. So that's a good one. Uh, the complete cocktail manual by Lou, Lou Bustamante. That's a really good kind of home bartending thing for beginners. So I think that it's like focusing on a spirit that you're not totally comfortable with ordering it out and then maybe buying a bottle of it and, and going through some of recipes in these books to figure out what works for you. That would be my advice. Mm, yeah, that's really great advice. I, I think that pushing your comfort zone is pretty crucial as you're starting to learn about cocktails because that's how you avoid stagnating and avoid getting kind of bored with things. And also, next time I need to set a New Year's resolution, I'm definitely going to call you first because yours <laughs> is way better than anything I've ever set. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was a fun one. Um, also, I would say um, buy a strainer, a jigger, a spoon, and then and then you'll be good. Yeah, really, you can just start with a regular pint glass or even just the you know the the bottom or top half of a, a cocktail shaker when when you're starting out. As long as you got that strainer, you're you're pretty much good to go. I agree. Yeah. All right. So Shanna, can you just tell people how to uh, connect with you digitally and where they can find your book? Yes. Uh, so my book is uh, more available locally in the Bay Area. It's at Omnivore Books. It's at Books, Inc. Uh, sometimes you can find it at Whole Foods, which is kind of weird when I'm grocery shopping, but um, it's there. It's also on Amazon. You can order it through your local bookstore. Social media wise, I'm at Shanna underscore Farrell. So it's S-H-A-N-N-A underscore F-A-R-R-E-L-L on both Twitter and Instagram. And my website is Shanna-Farrell.com. And I keep that updated pretty regularly with different pieces that I've written and different projects that I'm working on. Beautiful. Well, I definitely encourage our listeners to 
pick up a copy of Bay Area Cocktail so that they can get a little bit more in-depth with some of the things that we've been discussing this episode. And, you know, for anybody who is curious about links or details pertaining to the stuff that we've discussed here in this episode, head on over to modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Check out the show notes page for links to a bunch of the stuff that we've been talking about. So Shanna, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate this. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, amazing Bay Area cocktails insights by Shanna Farrell, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.